Hello, and welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here, of course, with Victor Davis Hansen, the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, we return this week, as we have been occasionally throughout this electoral season, to the presidential election. There's a lot of different ways that we could go with this. Why don't we start with this one because we are essentially contractually obligated to at this point. <laughs> we've Ever since we've been having these discussions in the middle of the summer, uh, Donald Trump always seems to come up and we've been told since about the time that Donald Trump got into this race, don't worry about it. He'll go away. He'll be gone eventually. This is you know the, the passion of a summer and uh, once the voters start getting serious, you'll see his numbers erode. It's been several months, Victor, and he's still pretty high in the polls. How do you read this situation? Oh, I think there's two or three things we're kind of missing, and one is that we should ask ourselves where he came from and why, and it was one issue that ignited his his race and was emblematic of a lot of other issues, but it was illegal immigration, and that was a politically correct massaged issue in which over the last five years we've been told that every single of the 11 million people that come in are dreamers that amnesty was the only way out, you had all these people at the border, and nobody really consulted the proverbial people. And then he just swept in and said, I'm going to send them back, da-da-da-da. He didn't care whether you – he deported Jorge Ramos from a, <laughs> from a press conference. And the reaction by Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio, they were stunned, and everybody thought he would implode, but he tapped into a nerve. And that – kind of gave him a, a modus operandi. So every time he took on somebody, there were certain attributes that were in common. He never started a fight. Remember, Lindsey Graham or Megyn Kelly or John McCain, he always counterpunched, and he was correct by saying that. And then he was able to figure out why there might be something in these attacks that people might not like from the attacker. Did John McCain uh, play up his uh, military service a little bit too much. Did Megyn Kelly want it both ways, being blonde, beautiful, uh, short skirt, and uh, a scholar who would never, who would never use her femininity for uh, you know an extra edge? Did Lindsey Graham sound like he was a loser? Was Jeb Bush a little under energized? And he tapped into something in a brilliant fashion. So, and then finally is that. I do think people thought, you know what, I don't have to make up a decision. This thing, this ridiculous race is so long, there's going to be all these debates. Let me have a psychological venting period. I really want to get back at all these elites, and I just want Trump to keep blustering. So if you go up to a Trump supporter and you say to him, Donald Trump wanted to impeach George W. Bush, Donald Trump probably voted for Barack Obama, Donald Trump was a big supporter of Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, uh, Donald Trump said that Nancy Pelosi was probably a, one of the great women politicians of our time. They don't care. Uh, they don't care. They like Instead, they'll say, I don't care. I like the idea that he waves his hand, he screams and yells, and he makes fun of the elite. And if you say, well, he is the elite, and he's been a business conniver, and he's, he doesn't have any true belief, they don't care. So it's a psychological venting process that we're not done with. And the elites say that we will be done when the primaries start in earnest in February, March, April. I'm not so sure, but that's the process that we're in. It's interesting when you consider Trump. Je Jeb Bush, I guess, presents almost the exact opposite phenomenon, which is we've been told all along that his, his moment is coming, that when people get serious, they will eventually turn to him. And there has not yet been the kind of boomlet that a lot of people in the press have been interpreting. How do you, how do you read that phenomenon? 
Well, or lack thereof, I guess. <laughs> he's, he's sober and judicious, and he's not capable. When he does say things that are contra, um, controversial or call Trump a name or pathetic or dangerous or he shouldn't have his new, he doesn't say it in a way that's controversial. He'd say, damn it, I don't want this SOB with his hand on the nuke button or something like that. Instead, it's, well, I don't think that he would be uh, necessarily the best person in the world to be control of nuclear. It just, it drones, it's style. And he's, he's more like his father, actually, than his brother. Everybody said W was, should have not been president and Jeb would have been better president, but more like his father. But the fact is, W was both more conservative and much more charismatic and had a temper and was able to, to smooth and, and get angry and be, sound more authentic than his Jeb, even though Jeb may, in theory, have more facts at his instant recall. So I, I don't think he comes across as a guy who is authentic and can lose his... And they all, all the Republican candidates are letting a liberal like Trump out conservative, out be the greater conservative than they are. And it's style. I, I confess, when he's on television, I, I'm enthralled by it. He's a great entertainer. So let's switch to the other side of the aisle for a moment, Ma making the assumption for a moment that Hillary Clinton will be the Democratic nominee, if she is. Um, the question that's out there is can she replicate the sort of coalition that twice propelled Barack Obama to the presidency when that coalition was very dependent on turning out minority voters to which Obama obviously had a unique appeal? Do you think that she can cobble together um, a base of support? in a way that allows her to at least get close enough to what Obama did to find her way to the White House. Yeah, that qualifier that you added was the key when you said at least the way Obama did because she can get a traditional large majority, maybe 70% of black voters, 60% of Hispanic or Asian, but can she have them turn out and vote not at 70 but 94% because in those six or seven key states – I don't know, North Carolina, Virginia, Ohio, Michigan, Colorado, Pennsylvania. She's going to need that because Barack Obama, the last time he was reelected in the last election, got down to 39% of the white vote. And if he gets down to 35 like Walter Mondale did, he's going to lose the election. So we have two forces, and they're antithetical, and one is the so-called has-been white vote is still 72% of the voting electorate. And if you get them energized and you get them mad enough and they vote in block and they're getting close to that right now, and Hillary can't win no matter what she does if she gets below 35%. But it's more likely she'll get between 35 and 39%, at which case she's got to get up to about 95% of the black vote and maybe 70% of the Hispanic vote. And that's why we're hearing basically that only black lives matter and we're hearing the lesbian, gay, minority agenda and Latinas and Latinos and all this open borders pandering that she has to. And I think all of your listeners know what she's going to do. As soon as she gets a nomination, she's going to go back to the 2008 Annie Oakley, Boilermaker, bowling mode to get back some of the white Democrats and maybe get that 39% or 38% up to 41% just in case. It's a very, it's a very difficult balancing act because um, the Democratic Party is. They keep talking that we're a diverse party, but they've got only white candidates, and they've got white old candidates, and they've got white old has been candidates like Hillary and 
if Biden gets in the, the race or Webb, that have either, I mean, they're, they're not active candidates. Biden and Hillary, if you got Al Gore or Kerry or Jerry Brown to come in, they've all failed to get the nomination. And they failed as uh, presidential candidates, and they are old, and they, they are white, which shouldn't make any difference, except to a Democrat who said that the race and youth and everything is everything. So I, I think they've got a real problem. I really do. Striking, too, as you watch these candidates debate, I mean, with Bernie Sanders, obviously, we know what we're getting, and a, a guy who's very left-wing and whose support is based on the fact that he's very left-wing. But if you watch these candidates sparring uh, last week, you also saw that Hillary Clinton tacked significantly to the left on a number of questions, and, and you heard, quote-unquote, mainstream Democrats saying things that four or definitely eight years ago – would have been regarded as electoral poison and people being very explicitly anti-gun, people talking well, with great enthusiasm about the prospect like of America there, looking like it, Scandinavia. Bernie Sanders in Old Testament style with both hands above his head was screaming about Wall Street and the, uh, the inordinate amount of wealth they make. I felt like saying, I guess her son-in-law is uh, Mark Mezvinsky, and I thought the same. Well, she's talking. Uh, Bernie Sanders is talking about Mezvinsky because he operates a hedge fund. His father not only operated, I think it was called Eagle Vale or something, um, but his father operated one and had problems with the law. And how did Chelsea Clinton get worth fifteen million dollars at her age? That's her net worth. And how, why did Hillary, when she left the State Department, go to work? in an office that was given to her by the hedge fund and how did she put a thousand dollars a few years ago and end up with a hundred thousand cattle futures profit which financial analysts said had about a one in 32 trillion chance of anybody else replicating that so I guess what I'm saying is that here's Hillary the socialist and here's Bernie Sanders a socialist but Bernie should have been saying Hillary you're the epitome of insider trading. You're the epitome of Wall Street. Your whole family has gone up to $150 million net plus worth. You've capitalized on your public career. That was what the disconnect was because everything that Bernie Sanders was saying was applicable to the woman right next to him on her, his left. And yet she was basically saying, <laughs> you know, I don't like Wall Street and what did that mean? I don't like myself. I don't like what Bill does. I don't like who Chelsea married. I don't like Chelsea's ethics. I don't think my daughter should have ended up with $15 million. I don't think that she should be working for the Clinton um, Foundation. I don't believe in the global initiative because that's, that's the type of people that she said she didn't like and that were harming America. You do get a sense from some of these Democratic candidates they, that they're making a bet that the traditional wisdom that America is a center-right country may not hold anymore. And if you, t and if you get a couple of drinks in certain conservatives, they'll tell you that they're worried about this, the same thing. Do you share that concern? Well, I think everybody does because take a state like California. One out of every four residents was not born in the United States and 60 million people, the largest – we've ever had were not born in the United States. And the idea is that if you combined illegal immigration or massive influxes with a welfare state, then you have a permanent constituency that's dependent on expanding government. And private enterprise is not the most natural first step to get in the middle class. It's working for the VA, the DMV, the county recorder's office, and so the postal service. Postal service we have 12% African-Americans. I think the Postal Service is well over 25% African-Americans. So diversity um, 
goals, diversity quotas don't apply to government service. And I think the idea is, or the worry is, that between government employment and government assistance, the Democratic Party is trying to alter the demography. So when Hillary goes down to Texas and says, Latinas and Latinos, we're going to turn Texas blue, nobody remembers that she said, I'm against illegal immigrants, not illegal illegal immigration, but she personalized it about three, three years ago or four years ago. So I, I guess that's the Democratic playbook, and they assume that assimilation will be retarded, slowed down, people will not intermarry, assimilate, integrate to the degree that an Italian today, if your name is Pataki or your name is Cuomo, nobody knows what your politics are by the basis of your Italian surname because you're an individual and they don't think that Hispanics will follow that easy trajectory, that they'll vote en masse and, and block. I don't know if they're right or not, but that's their guess. But they also, there's one last twist to it. They, they're also assuming that nobody else can do this. Only Hispanics, only blacks, only gays can vote in hyphenated identity politics fashion. And they can vote not for the individual, but for the collective on the basis of an external factor, racial uh, identity. But if you white people were to ever do that, and you were ever to say, I'm going to vote for Mitt Romney over Obama because he's white, not because he's conservative, but because he's white, then the whole thing would, would dissolve because you wouldn't get 39% of the white vote for Obama. You'd get 10 in the way you get 6% of the African-American vote voting for Romney. If you were to get to that situation, it's going to blow up in their face. That's what I'm worried about. You know, I have a very interesting thing. I live in a town that's 90% Hispanic, and I've never had this experience in my life. When I walk in a Walmart or a Target and everybody's speaking Spanish, everybody's Hispanic, and everybody's saying this is the La Familia, and you hear people saying, I, I joke around with it, that the, the uh, checkers... I think I lost Victor. Okay, yeah, I did too. All right, hang on. Count you in in three, two, one. I've had a very interesting experience that I've never had before, and that is living as a minority in a community that's about 90% Hispanic, and many of them are nationals from Mexico. When I go to Target or I go to Walmart, I see only people speaking Spanish, and I, the, the checkers and the people who work the store laugh and say, then this is like being in Mexico, and it's a wonderful solidarity, an ethnic solidarity, and we're all supposed to think that's fine. But when I see somebody who's non-Hispanic, white, and never in my life have anybody reacted to me as a fellow person in an overt way, and now I see people... I'll see one or two white people in a store of 500 and they'll come up and say, hi, how are you? And what I'm getting at is that when everybody says that I'm a member of a particular tribe, black lives matter, nobody else matters, I'm a Latina or a Latino, uh, I'm part of the Asian movement, I'm part of the gay, transgender movement, then the natural uh, assumption is that nobody else can do that. But when you're in California and whites are 39% of the population, you can see where we're going with this. And when people, the Democratic, what we're getting at is do the Democratic Party still want to create a tribal Balkan system or a Rwanda system where 72% of the country are white? And they have been told, for obvious reasons, not to identify with white. 
because it's an oppressive majority. But now when it's down to 72%, if they start doing that, and there's some suggestion that when the Democratic Party gets down to 35%, they are, the Democratic Party can't win anymore. And so there's not enough white liberals. If they go down that, everybody votes according to their tribe. And that's what's scary and also fascinating because the Democratic Party is gambling that we can talk about white privilege, white privilege, white privilege, police are racist, black lives matter, uh, open borders, you're a xenophobe, you're a nativist, and that nobody, that the, nobody's going to get angry who are the logical supposed targets of that invective. And I, don't, I think they're playing with fire. I really do. The final question that I'll put to you, it's been a matter of received wisdom the last couple of election cycles that Americans are war-weary, that they're tired of commitments overseas. At the same time, it feels like now the sense that the Obama foreign policy is collapsing is broader than just partisan Republicans. What sort of influence do you think foreign policy may have in the election next year? Oh, I think it wouldn't have had in the pre-ISIS days. You saw that with Rand Paul's candidacy. He was all pledged on, I'm a unique, uniquely libertarian Republican who doesn't want to get involved and waste money on people who aren't worth it. And then ISIS came along and there was beheadings and burnings and drownings and he looked like an idiot and he's faded on to almost nothing. Whereas uh, Trump, even though he has, let's play one side off the other, it's more muscular and I'm going to be engaged. I don't know how he wants to be engaged, but I, I think the more that it's chaotic and remember your listeners are looking at the Middle East and they're thinking, we ruined Libya. There was Benghazi. We backed the Muslim Brotherhood and almost destroyed our relationship with Egypt. We bragged on Yemen being a success. It's an utter failure. We pulled out everybody of Iraq and sacrificed six years of blood and treasure, which finally was working. We gave away the store with Iran. We had a red line in Syria, then there was no red line. And there's nothing but what in Afghanistan, all, more people, four times more people have been killed in Afghanistan than during the Bush administration. So there's nothing there that anybody wants to take credit for. And I think that Americans tire of wars and if they're losing wars. In other words, if you're spending blood and treasure and you're getting nowhere. But when they finally got somewhere in Iraq, they supported the idea of leaving troops there like they do in Korea. Anything that's successful, if you told an American, we can go in there and beat the enemy and we can occupy the country and give everybody a chance and it's going to work, they will probably reluctantly support it. But boy, when you say we're going to train the free Syrian army and then we spend, I don't know, half a billion bucks and we end up with five people and then the Soviets come in and start bombing them, then they don't want anything to do with it. Who would? All right. A topic that I'm sure that we're going to be returning to more than once uh, before this time next year. That's all the time that we have for today's episode. Join us next week for the next installment of the Classicist Podcast. And in the meantime, you can stop by hoover.org to read all of Professor Hansen's commentary. We'll see you back here soon. For Victor Davis Hansen and the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.